The reason that false teaching is often so appealing is because it allows us to put pen to paper, that we maintain control, that we do it ourselves, and that we're just too prideful to actually need help. Well, I don't necessarily want to go on a tangent here, but let's be real. <laughs> the, the last week, I've had this certain post show up in my newsfeed multiple times. I, and now it's like as if the algorithm was saying like, look, you really need to look at this thing. And at first glance, it was just some kind of Christian post with a very uplifting message. But every time I saw it, I kind of looked a little deeper and I personally found it to be off-brand. Some things seem Christian, but are just not biblically based. And we should caution ourselves as to what is the source material of our beliefs. So the post in question, well, it gave a list of things to do in order to seek God during the month. And it was a nice list filled with nice things you could do, like give someone flowers, give thanks for your coffee, uh, fast from your phone, or just go outside. Essentially, it was filled with good works. And what was noticeably missing for me from the list was, how about read your Bible? See, the goal was to seek God, but it didn't seem to be clear as to what it was talking about. Now, if by seeking you mean seeing God and all that we experience and do, then yes, by all means. But I felt that this was a list encouraging the seeking of spiritual highs, just trying to get your fix so that you feel close to God. Everything listed, you could almost though do without God. And it could just be reduced down to self-care. And it implies that in order to find God, you must do acts of good works. But a list for an entire month of encouraging seeking God, but never going to the written word, that would leave us clueless on how to see God clearly in anything that it actually suggested. So the issue, although you, it could have been the best intentions, not necessarily nefarious, it was still kind of misguided. It certainly was misleading to young believers. It lacks biblical depth, and its impression leaves a very much an untruth. And I've seen way too many youth tell me Christian culture sayings that just aren't true. Now, I thought about showing you this post to better explain my example, but honestly, that didn't even sit fully right with me. And I kept going back to scripture to understand why it didn't sit right. And I discussed it with others, and as I discussed it with them, they went back to Scripture and suggesting things with me about, well, have you considered what this verse says? And I didn't want to come across as criticizing this post, but at the same time, I know that I need to be warning people of false teaching. Now, some suggested, like Matthew 18, Rick, um, if someone has sinned against you, go to them and confront them, not doing it publicly. Well, here's the problem. I don't have a personal relationship with this post but it's also been made public. Now, for some people, this might not be the right approach, but for me in the role that I play as an overseer, scripture is very clear. I am responsible for heeding warning of false teaching. The problem is that there's just way too many false teaching ideas, ways bombarding you in your daily life. So uh, there might not be enough time for me to go through every single one and explain that it's not sound. Although at times it should be addressed, as Paul did with the church in Corinth. Like, that's why we have 1 Corinthians. So you can never really come to me and be like, Rick, you didn't warn me about this false teaching. Jeez, I'm sorry. But more important, I, what I should be doing is teaching what is biblical and equip you to identify false teaching for yourself. 
What stood out about this whole process was how it kept circling back to the emphasis of what does the Bible call for, even in using this post as an example. And that's kind of the important piece to this whole puzzle. Does the truth matter? Why can't all teaching just kind of be out there and just be accepted? Well, why label anything as false teaching to begin with? I mean, since it already exists, why do we have to be so negative? And a heads up, we will be accused of being negative often, no matter what. But I say this firmly, we have to speak truth. In order to speak truth, it means you will step on the toes of the untruth. Now, we need to speak truth in grace and love, but truth nonetheless. It matters because God says it matters. Look at these passages. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. God's not just saying things off the cuff and then later on he has to delete the posts. And Jesus said this is the reason that he came, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. And when he was praying to the Father, Jesus prayed for us to be what? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the real question is, does what God says matter? Well, if we look at the start of God's creation, his very first creative expression as a creator, it is through his spoken word. As the verses say, and God said, let there be fill in the blank, and there was. So I had this really precious moment with my son, Josiah, as we're walking on the beach on vacation. It's just him and me, and we're just walking. I'm just trying to get somewhere, and we just keep going. And i kind of looking around, and I just say, look at all the amazing creations. And then my son says, yeah, God made it all. Now, that should warm your heart. But a little while later, my son says, but how did God make it? And I said, he spoke. So let's take a second and look at this section of Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The utterance of God's truth was vocalized. That is the beginning of all creation, by God speaking. And at once, the sheer existence of all that is created, His truth is known. Now, we could leave this to God's architecture and His artistry, but God primarily has vocalized His truth through His divine Word. God has formalized all form of communication, and He's done so in order to bring about understanding of His glory and majesty. And at the height of all communication is the divine Word of God. There's no other words spoken that are more powerful or life-changing than those that we actually have access immediately to today. I mean, the Bible is on our phones. Scripture holds a significant portal into the wisdom and righteousness of God, and He has deemed these things appropriate and important for our understanding, these words. And all of it was spoken into existence. See, God is a speechable being, and I don't even know if that's a word, but that doesn't matter. God, I'm just going to go with it. God is a speechable being, meaning He's capable of speech. He has something valuable to say. He's worthy of it. Now, we'd like to say that about ourselves, but there's a difference between the way we talk and God's Word. God's Word carries righteousness, holiness, power. Well, 
if God can talk, well, why doesn't he say something right now? What do you mean, like a, like a show pony? See, God has already spoken verbally. A passage I keep coming back to of the disciples sharing the gospel is this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Do you remember when those words were spoken? It was at Jesus' baptism, right? That there were eyewitnesses of the Holy Spirit coming down and anointing Jesus, and they heard the audible voice of God confirming Jesus' divinity as God. Now, I know that we all want to hear from God. I know that we all think sometimes, if I could just hear his voice, what does it sound like? I want to hear the audible tune of God. I don't know if we really understand what we're asking for when we say that, though. right? I don't think Moses was exactly excited about what God had to say to him and how it completely changed his life, right? And I've noticed throughout all of Scripture that when God speaks, it's kind of like a tsunami coming at you, right? You don't know how to get out of the way of something like that. See, God's Word is so massive. There's no syllable from God that is without glorious purpose. There's no filler. There's no small talk. And, and there's more to God in His spoken Word than just being audible. See, his divine being is rooted deeply in this concept that God speaks. Just just look at John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God. And later in the passage, it says that the Word becomes flesh. And it confirms that Jesus is the Word. And that means that all of Scripture is not just words from God, but the Word of the living God. And when we look at the Holy Spirit, and we look at its meaning of the word spirit, it means breath. That, it, that the Spirit is the breath of God. We see that in Genesis as the breath of God hovers over all creation. And how later in Scripture it also talks about how that when God speaks, that His breath goes out and does its will, and it does not return empty-handed, but fulfills the Word of God. See, Jesus is the catalyst. He's the substance of the truth that is spoken, and the Spirit is that vocalized breath of that speech sent out as an agent of God's will. And this is what that verse is saying here in Psalm 33, that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Everything exists because of His word, but also it's maintained, it's preserved, it's upheld by the authority of His word. Jesus, the word, holds up all things. He holds all things together. And he can do this because as God, he has authority. Now, R.C. Sproul likes to say that the word authority has the word author in it. Did you ever notice that before? The reason God holds authority is because he's actually the author of his creation. He is the writer, the composer. He's the playwright of his masterpiece. He has written the drama of life. The story that has been unfolded, unfolding right now, and will unfold just as it was written to conclude. God has not only commissioned the story of his creation, he has created every line of it. And by doing so, he's already dotted the final sentence of history. See, God's authorship over creation, it cannot be challenged or overruled. 
This is another misconception or a false teaching is that Satan is somehow equal to God, that there's an equal duality to God, Satan and God. They're just opposite sides of a coin. That God's supremacy is in danger of being beaten by an equal, more powerful being. If Satan could, in fact, outsmart God, then God would have no sovereignty, no authorship, no ownership, and we would have no hope. See, Satan is not equal to God. He's not all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. Man, he's not even all-purposeful. He's kind of like a chicken with his head cut off. Just, just do as much damage as I can. I've heard atheists debate the summary of the story of Job, kind of saying that it's God and the devil kind of making a bet as to whether Job will remain faithful to God, as if we're just God's dollhouse and Job is Ken. And he's like, let's see what story we create today. And and that's kind of a distorted interpretation of what happens in Job. It it makes God's sovereignty kind of helpless and God with no real plan. But that is exactly the way Satan presents God's sovereignty to God. I bet Job will just flip the moment he experiences a little suffering. He wants God and us to believe this is how it works. This is how God's authorship functions and that God is a mere spectator to what he wrote. And when I read the account in Scripture, it doesn't read that way. See, God is very clear. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is not a compliment like you and I would give. Like, oh, you're pretty blameless and upright in my opinion. No, when God says it, it is fact. The Lord speaks this as truth, and he says it twice, and Satan still doesn't get that. That when God spoke it, the outcome was written. There was no, well, we'll see. We can find comfort and take confidence when Scripture assures us of God's sovereignty over our outcomes. Like verses like this, talking about Jesus, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And while this subject can cause much controversy and headaches, I get it, surrounding the relationship between God's sovereignty and our own free will. It's important to note that God always holds a higher supremacy over our own abilities and outcomes, that while, yes, we are active in the story process, it's still within the parameters of the story God is telling. And whatever lesser authority we have, it all derives from His ultimate authority. Now, why do I bring this up? because it's crucially important to keep in mind God's own freedom in relation to his sovereignty. We are way too fixated on our freedom that we miss out on the fact that God has the right to creatively express himself. See, God is purposeful in the reason he created a destined fallen creation, that history, the history of his creation holds a creative story arc that only God could tell. You ever heard of Deus Ex Machia? It's a writing tool. It's used when authors write their characters into a corner. And so this godlike action is required in order to continue the story. It's like the the characters are pinned down. There's there's no way out. Send in the eagles, Lord of the Rings. It's why my brother gets upset with Top Gun Maverick because he's like, man, that's just lazy writing because we want to see the characters as self-sufficient. We want to see them get out of their own situations, get out of their own problems. But I think this really shows how dependent we really are. And we hate that. That that the fact that God is the only one that could intervene to rescue us. See, what story do you think God is telling? We'd like to think that it's our story that's being told. And without alienating everyone, which, here it goes, 
I never want to be that self-help church and avoid this truth. The story God is telling is not ours. It is the story of his son. Our redemption story is really a story about Jesus. It is the story of the obedient son to the father's will. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So God may tell a story of his sacrificial son who gives us freedom from sin. Now, don't worry. VeggieTales mantra still holds up. God made you special and he does love you very much. But I think we get way too caught up in trying to play out our story for our life that we end up only thinking about ourselves and using God for ourselves. Now, I cannot be the centric storyline, even though that my existence is attached to this perspective of what I see. But there is something greater at work in my life outside of my control that I cannot ignore. And as I walk my faith journey out, I find more and more, it's not my story that I want to tell, but his. Look at Jesus. Look at what he's doing. Don't look at me. See, my story is a mirror reflection of his glory that I no longer live but Christ in me. Look at his works. Look at his obedience. Jesus, the word of God that holds up all things. Not only is he the author of his creation, the author of you, he is also the author of our faith. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the author. The Greek word here, it means that our faith originates with him, that he is the founder. He's the one that furnishes the very first cause. We've actually brought nothing to the writer's table. And this is so that we can't boast that the story remains on Jesus and that he is also the perfecter of our faith. Now, here's where another false truth kind of creeps in, the word perfecter, that we think that we're the ones that have to perfect our faith, that we have to work somehow now for his glory rather than to respond to his glory, that seeking God is somehow tied to first do good works and then you get to be with me. Christ is our perfecter who is calling and shaping our image into his, an outcome which reflects his glory. This is a truth that we might know, but our actions often, they just, they haven't quite caught up. And we live out a biblical untruth in how we serve God. The reason that false teaching is often so appealing is because it allows us to put pen to paper, that we maintain control, that we do it ourselves, and that we're just too prideful to actually need help. Yet God's creativity writes it so that the true story that is being told is about how all eyes are on his son. And it's not a tragic story that ends with shame on the cross. It's a joyous story, a story of joy that is established on the throne long before Jesus endured the cross, long before he took on our penalties, that while we were still sinners, Christ died to redeem God's fallen creatures. And this is why the disciples say, look what we did. We killed the author of life, but God, God raised him from the dead. This is our confidence that the story was predetermined to end in joy. So let's, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's really what bothered me about that post. I know I'm going back to it, but it's that post. That post was supposed to be all about God, but its eyes were not fixed on Jesus. They were fixed on us. Great. So now what? What are you saying, Rick? 
What are we just disposable? We don't mean anything? We're just sub-characters? Yes. Are we worthless though? No. No. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for those good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This workmanship, it's the Greek word for poema. And it's, it's where we derive our modern English word for poetry. That we are Christ's poetry. That we are God's love letter. And as much as we try to make it about ourselves, that we try to remove ourselves from the paper to make ourselves something like God, we're missing the significance that we are his expression vocalized into existence, that we are his authored creativity, and we are for his glory. And there is no better story to be a part of.